0: Welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how you doing, sir? I'm great. It's always
1: uh, great to see you in person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sadly, that's going to be happening a lot
0: less. Yeah, end of August, I will be finally leaving Boston. Derek and I will still get to talk, obviously, but not in person as much as before. But I'll only be like a a three-and-a-half-hour drive away, so it's not like I won't be able to... Come as often as I would like, though I imagine school had me pretty busy during the rest of the year. We got to go to church again together yesterday. I had heard things about what yesterday's elders' quorum lesson was going to be on. Well, it went a bit of a different direction. Do you want to talk about what we ended up discussing, what we learned, and what else went down?
1: Right. So we talked about Clayton Christiansen's Clayton Christiansen's book, "The Power Day." Power of Everyday Missionaries. The power of everyday missionaries. Yes. And from chapter 14, now I've read this book many years ago, mm-hmm. so I don't have it all in my head, but the chapter we talked about was being a ward that was ready for converts, ready and welcoming and safe for converts. So I think the
0: chapter was called
1: Wards That God Could Trust. Let me just get the book. Right. It was about like, God can God trust you with those God has prepared for Uh, for conversion, right? And so what we did was we talked about several case studies of wards that were really welcoming and then asked how we, because we haven't had a baptism in that ward in a while, especially a baptism that has resulted in a well-formed, well-assimilated convert who's prepared for lifelong discipleship. We've had some people who get baptized and then we don't see them again.
0: Interestingly enough, I was at the last two baptisms. Uh, neither of those guys are active presently. And you know, that is obviously
1: an issue. So, I don't want to talk about this too much cuz I've got a lot of stuff to talk about for this other, <laughs> like the actual content. Of course you do. But the the short version is after the events of last month where there's homophobes emboldened to say their stuff in front of everyone. Yep. How embarrassing for for grown men to play the game of like, oh no, you can't come into our treehouse. Like that is literally what they're doing. It's Mm -hmm. so embarrassing. Mm -hmm. But in light of that, I decided to make a statement in the, in the midst of the lesson. The instructor called on me and I raised my hand, I raised my hand and I said some things. And I basically, number one, the most important tool that I have is to come out. Mm -hmm. To say the words, I am gay. And my gift to the quorum was not just that they've met a gay person, but they've met a gay person who's not afraid, which many of them have never gotten that gift before, at least in the church.
0: So what did you think of that? Well, I was waiting to see where you were going by saying, or rather What the point you wanted to make was that uh, you were unafraid i'd heard you say that before but i wanted to hear what you were going to tell the brethren about what it means to know a gay person that is unafraid you went more or less the direction i thought you were going to go but i was inwardly my inward dialogue was like what kind of mess is derek about to create real quick uh-huh. and what is going to be the effect of that on the quorum what is he about to let these brethren know precisely that is going to make sure that the kind of behavior that a occur- that occurred about a month ago is not going to happen again and then there was that little fun game i was playing as if to say as if to be like what exactly is derek going to say and how messy is it going to be yeah like so i knew that they i knew you were going to get the desired effect i was just excited to see how exactly you were going to do it so mm-hmm. yeah i, I knew you were going to do what needed to be done. Yeah, and, and the important things are I
1: led with expectations. I yeah. set the stage for yeah. expected behavior in yep. the room. Like, yep. I am a classroom teacher. Yeah. like I. You
0: said it explicitly as well, which I yes. really like. This is my expectation. I forget that you're a classroom teacher sometimes because, like, the way you elucidated your expectations and the consequent uh, mm-hmm. what is going to be okay, what is not going to be okay, mm-hmm. what, that mm-hmm. you, mm-hmm. what that means for you, what that means for me, like, everything was just... So mm-hmm. crispy, Derek. It was so clear oh, just. Thank you. Including my joke that you laughed at. You <laughs> tell me I have bad jokes. I was the loudest You made the, you made a joke I had heard at least a dozen times before, but it was just <laughs> one of it's just like I can't believe Derek said this in front of other people. I think the joke well, was
1: <laughs> Yeah, it was about like I'm in in this room like people are I was making the point that queer people aren't welcome here and why am I here then I'm like I am like Shadrach Meshach and Abednego in the fiery furnace but I'm not hurt because I'm already flaming (laughs) but that actually humor is a tool of prejudice reduction right it's very disarming because it changes the the atmosphere of the room it lightens the mood it takes off the edge it gets people coming at it from a completely different angle.
0: This is why you're so committed to being a comedian, I see. I know, Yeah. I know. yeah. Okay. So
1: that's that's part of it. And the other part of it is is that I set it up towards the, something that's in their interest, right? They want to be affirming and welcoming of converts. They want to be uh, a word that God can trust. And uh-huh. so they're uh-huh. motivated and primed to not say any more anti-lgbt stuff now i don't know uh, which people in that room were the problem people because i wasn't there that day
0: i'll tell you it was a problem though johnny for waiting forever to give us those treats bro that oh. was infuriating let me tell you this man sat up said he brought us treats proceeded to talk for another minute before giving us the yes. treats. i was just like bruh open that bag give us them <laughs> treats like johnny was a problem that day John, if you listen to this, don't do that mess no more, bro. Yeah. When you say you got treats, my expectation is that you begin immediate dispersal of treats. <laughs> that do was not high. say you got treats and then proceed to talk for a minute or two about the treats. That yeah, I, I'll go to allrecipes.com yeah. if that's what I want. Yeah. If I want to hear a treatise and a story <laughs> about what you are about to cook or get... I'm sorry. Yeah,
1: you are as mad about those treats I as was. you are about
0: racism. I am. And I <laughs> And, I'm just saying don't tease me right. I, Like I go like, to allrecipes.com <laughs> Give me the recipe Don't give me no story Do not <laughs> tell me bad. what I want And then proceed to dangle it in front of me <laughs> For another five minutes We ain't doing that today Those treats were good They were they like were these delicious c-
1: Like crispy peanut butter chocolatey yeah, things it was like, a, like bars Yeah like, it
0: felt It was like a rice crispy treat Layered in peanut butter and chocolate It was really nice Really tasty It had special K in it Yeah. So let me just get back to Sorry man. (laughs) The so the
1: way I set it up, it would be very almost impossible for anyone to refute me afterward based Mm -hmm. on the power of my voice and what I was saying and how I wanted my people to be safe there. Like no one's gonna come back and say nope. So the fact I said it in such a way that no one did a rebuttal afterward, the fact that everyone else said nothing against it, normalized what I said. Mm-hmm. And a few people afterward commented and and kind of supported it as well. So now that yeah. sets the yeah. tone for the whole room that everyone looked around the room, I'm like no one else is talking against Derek. The bishop is there and not talking against Correct. Derek. Yep. Like there were powerful people in the room, like there were old people, right? <laughs> yeah. There's the singles ward, and if there's all these old people there, I know that they're not in the mid-singles ward. They're like, uh-huh counselors or senior missionaries or whatever they are. They're like important Uh, people. right? And they didn't push back so that sets the example for everyone else Uh and that makes hopefully that will could change the course of the ward.
0: I hope so. One more thing I noticed in there was uh, just in uh, the lack of speech, the lack of pushback from the older members. It yet again showed me what our role as millennials kind of is in this uh, church today. I feel like a lot of our role is to act simultaneously as a mortician and a midwife. Does that make sense? Like, mm-hmm. now, granted, I want to give credit to the older generations who are consistently up- updating their software. Like, I want to give mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. credit where that is due. As you spoke, I just felt that responsibility we have the undertakers who like bury the old ways, bury the church that was, you know, racist, homophobic, Puritan, and all that other mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. And we make way for the birth of something that's more life-giving.
1: The challenge, though, is that a lot of these isms don't actually die. They just mutate into a new form that's resistant to the thing that tried to eliminate it before. Right. Like and it'll come back in, an, in a prettier package. and mm-hmm. So that's a mess. But I just want to end by saying I really think that uh, what I said and what happened yesterday, people in that room got to see two miracles. One yeah. is a single voice can change the whole room. Mm
0: -hmm. And the second Mm -hmm. miracle is I said what I needed to
1: say in less than five
0: minutes. You did. That's the thing, I was watching the clock, I was like, crap, Derek's about to speak and we only got 10 minutes left. Can he say (laughs) what he's gotta say in 10 minutes? But he did it, less than two minutes. Okay, so let's go on to this, uh, the lesson. So before we go ahead and dive into the lesson, just want to remind y'all that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Uh, find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So we are in this week, Doctrine and Covenants, section 85 through 87. Um, There's no real common themes. Like this this isn't really like all the all three of these sections are very different. They talk about very different things. So I'm not going to try to go do an overview of all of them at once. I'd rather go section by section and talk about what the context is for each one of these. Um, So in 85, that's where I want to start. I'm going to start with these very first two verses. Section 85 this may be where we start to be start to see the beginning of the end of the united order the united order again only lasted for about two years and uh, we start to see kind of why that's happening in section 85 the saints were starting to gather in missouri uh, a bunch of them but most of those that were arriving were not following the law of consecration they weren't consecrating their properties to the church and the leaders in missouri were kind of freaking out about it Now, Joseph, having been informed of the spirit of the uh, trouble of the leaders in Missouri, he sought and received an answer, that is, section 85, an excerpt of a letter he sent to uh, William W. Phelps. So again, this is uh, about the law of consecration, and uh, then there's particular instructions that uh, Joseph Smith, or that the Lord, rather, gives uh, to the saints in uh, in these short verses here so immediately the thing that i've noticed in section 85 the opening verses of the section are about keeping a history and i believe the come follow manual come follow me manual highlights this as well the importance of keeping uh administrative history and a record of saints manner of life it says their faith and their works so i thought this was a good opportunity to talk about the value of uh, keeping history and keeping records there's this video circulating this week of this comedian named walter masterson basically trolling a school board meeting about critical race theory it's pretty funny he basically got up pretending to be an anti-crt conservative and then he proceeded to talk about How there is too much history in our history books uh and that he wants our children to learn about things like the civil war but not about slavery he wants them to learn about world war ii but not about japanese internment he wants them to learn about martin luther king's i have a dream speech but not about how the fbi and stuff threatened him and basically ruined his life and how the president at the time villainized him what was wild about this was that while a lot of people knew that this was a satirical uh, speech, a lot of the anti-CRT folks in the crowd, they were applauding him. They were applauding him, not seeing the irony of his points. These people were applauding the deliberate misinformation of their children. This man literally said, there's too much history in our history textbooks, and those folks applauded him. The most important thing he highlighted, I think, was that the fact that not knowing history or not Wanting to know history was a virtue to a lot of these people who are anti CRT. He was uh, saying that uh, being anti CRT did not really put us in the best position to address the most pressing societal problems we have, specifically in this case, racism. Uh, those ignorant of history, they often have loud opinions, uh, but they can't contribute to the constructive dialogue in any meaningful way, as uh, they're not even showing up to the conversation informed or, or uh, otherwise demonstrating a bare minimum of investment in the conversation being had by doing research beyond some memes and sound bites that they found on the internet. So I want to bring this back to, uh, to our records. Both the Bible and uh, the Book of Mormon make a, a big deal of understanding our history. For example, in the uh, book of Chronicles, we learn about the uh, the sons of Issachar and how they were to have an understanding of the, they had an understanding of the times uh, to know what Israel ought to do. Again, because they had records. In Alma, we read that the records, quote, enlarge the memory of their people, yea, and convinced many of the errors of their ways, close quote. Every section of the doctrine and covenants that we have comes with a historical context. Because, like a historical introduction, to contextualize the preceding revelation so that we can understand it better, so that we can uh, read it properly. Uh, The implication of both of these verses that we just read and the organization of the Doctrine and Covenants is that understanding our history helps us understand and act better in our present. Therefore, it stands to reason that if we want to understand the racial tension that exists today... Um, and if we want to properly address it, we have to understand the history of that tension. Consider, for example, um, I mean, last year we had, uh, the killing of George Floyd. George Floyd was not the first person to die within like a 15 mile radius of, uh, Minneapolis where he was killed. Like he wasn't even the first unarmed black man to die that year within that radius, um, That information alone helps us contextualize the response to his death, but there's more to consider on a local level. Uh, The neighborhood that George was in, the racial makeup of that neighborhood and the force assigned to it, uh, whether or not the area was segregated, stuff like that. And then there's things to contribute or things to consider on a macro level, like the fact that the police officers were tied to slave patrols, or in other words, an organization that was actually purposed to control the black body. So, All of those things provide context. History is context. Um, One more beautiful truth that was found in that Alma scripture is the uh, transformative nature of learning our history. We learn it not just to uh, learn more about the past, but we learn it to know more about ourselves. That was like, just to read that verse again, it enlarged the memory of their people. yea, convinced many of the errors of their ways. That is a critical point. History tells us who and where we come from and how people and events of the past shape who we are now and why we are here Uh, and what kind of choices that we need to make, what kind of actions we need to take in order to pursue a more just future. Because without a sense of history, we lose our sense of self and we risk seeking our sense of self, or risk seeking uh, those parts in more volatile places that validate the more uh, errant parts of our identity. So all this to say, history is very important. It's necessary to our development. It's ne- it's necessary to our to our growth. It's necessary to becoming more Christ-like individuals. We can't fix these problems without understanding our history, both within the church and without it.
1: That, that makes a lot of sense and I wanna follow that up with two things. One is okay. the importance of who gets to tell the history and this is mm-hmm. really the center of a critical race theory. So I'm looking at how it, Egypt has kept their history versus how Israel kept their history. When you look at the historical records of Egypt, they sanitized their history, they almost never Put bad things in. Like when they lost battles, they didn't record it. They just put the glorious things in. Mm -hmm. And it goes so far as to literally erase history. You know, people talking about the Confederates erasing history, complaining about mm, erasing history, but they did. If there was a previous pharaoh that they fell out of favor and they didn't like, they deleted them from the king list of kings. Mm. And this happened with Akhenaten and how they destroyed and effaced his monuments and they literally erased history they just Mm -hmm. wipe out the names of of uh things that things that they didn't like Mm -hmm. whereas israel actually did the opposite if you look at every one of the records in the bible they always are honest about the failings of the nation and the failings of the leaders from moses to david to i mean like i don't i can't even list them all but almost every major figure except for jesus had major problems Mm -hmm. and those are spoken of honestly in the scriptures Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i think we're in danger of doing that in the church of just sanitizing the past or the present of our what our church is doing and interesting and we're not allowing ourselves to tell the full truth about our people and our leaders and that gets back to uh this video right and I think what what was what they brought out was the fact that critical race theory isn't a it isn't an agenda of specific policy changes it's simply a way of looking at a situation or a way of looking at at the case and analyzing it right mm-hmm. there shouldn't be anything to be afraid of um, unless you're invested in racism obviously mm-hmm. and then and mm-hmm. then you should be you should be afraid right. But that's kind of uh, what I wanted to get back to: is who gets to keep the history? Because if yeah. you control the history, then you control the present, and you can impact the future. Mm-hmm. And that's why. Uh, and the other, th- the thing that is so disingenuous, and I they know they're doing this. The the leaders that are anti-critical, race. they're actually not anti-critical race theory. The thing that they're talking about isn't even critical race theory. Yeah. They're just using it. As an umbrella term for everything that they want to invalidate, Right. and right. it's this what they're talking about. It's it's completely uh, a straw man. What yeah. they're doing, yeah, straw person I have to be gender neutral. <laughs> <laughs> and this uh, that this critical race theory being taught in K through twelve. That's not what is being taught, right? Uh-huh. It's anyway. So we we could go on, but I don't want to go on anymore because. Uh, yeah, that's all I had to
0: say. All right, cool. Um, we got a little more that we want to talk about with uh, within Section 85. Do you want to tell us a little bit about them ark steadiers? Yes. So I hear this all the time in the church. Now, how have you heard this term used? Oftentimes I, use it, I hear it as a tool used to uh, shield the leaders from criticism mm-hmm, or to shield mm-hmm. um, or, you know, to not encourage anybody to act of their own volition or in the way that they feel best to handle a situation that doesn't necessarily meet the unwritten protocols or even the written ones that the church has set forth so um yeah i often hear it used as a weapon against those with less power or even occasionally those in power who act without the conventions of church leadership
1: right and To zoom out and talk about that piece of it, if you look throughout the scriptures, we've got examples of people on the bottom pointing out a problem and then God intervening on the side of the people on the bottom. Lots of them. It happens all the time. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of bottom-up revelation in the church. I've talked... I, didn't I have like 10
0: examples in one you did. one thing of, of cases where at this happened? At least 10. Yes. Like, I only put 10 on uh, yeah. the Instagram because that's all I could fit in there. <laughs> you had more, but yeah, at least 10. Yeah. So, we've got all these examples of people who want to
1: live out God's promises, mm-hmm. and they hold the church or God's leaders... Accountable to that, right? Mm -hmm. That is Mm -hmm. taking it seriously, taking the promises seriously, right? Right. So to label them as arc steadiers is exceptionally manipulative and self-serving. Yeah. But let's zoom in to the story that this is talking about because what we'll realize is that whole analogy isn't even valid Mm -hmm. because people will say someone is an arc steadier if they are criticizing, uh. The leadership, and that God punishes those who criticize the leadership. Mm-hmm. And as we will see, it's actually the opposite. Uzzah mm-hmm. does not criticize any leaders; he does not make any objection to anything. But he goes along with the program, and that's what actually kills him. So let's go and look at the uh, look at the data here. All right. Look at this evidence. There's going to be a lot of evidence.
0: <laughs> Looking forward to it.
1: So the first thing to remember is that in the Torah, God specified how the ark was to be carried. Okay. What David ended up doing was putting it on an ox cart, which is literally what it says not to do. You're supposed to have rings on the side of the ark and put poles in the rings, and then the Levites are supposed to carry it on foot, on the shoulders. Okay, so hold
0: on. Out the gate, somebody up top has already messed up regarding how this thing is supposed to be transported.
1: Right. It's very clear. I'm not going to read these quotes, but look at the construction of the Ark and the Rings and the Poles in Exodus 25, verses 12 through 14, and then look at the, in the legislation on how uh, it's supposed to be, and by legislation I mean the actual legal text of, of uh, what the statute is, uh-huh. in Numbers 4, verses 15 and 19, where it says that it's supposed to be carried, by the Levites, it says how to do it and what's to do. And everyone knew this, especially the Levites, right? And the, there's no excuse for this, because if you look in Deuteronomy and Joshua, throughout Joshua, there are many, many examples of them carrying the Ark the right way when they cross through the sea. It's very, uh, uh, I'm sorry, when they cross through the Jordan River on dry land, it says how they carried it. So they knew how to carry the Ark. Mm-hmm. So. That's your first thing. We've yeah, got yeah. the scriptures there. People should be accountable to those scriptures. Mm-hmm. Now let me uh, read. It's important to actually go back and read the text mm-hmm. because people mm-hmm. make a lot of assumptions. And so this text is found. There's a parallel. It's really reported twice. One in Second Samuel six verses one through eight, and then again basically the same wording in First Chronicles thirteen seven through eleven. And I'm going to read the First Chronicles thirteen version. And, and listen carefully to these details. So David assembled all Israel from the Shihor River in Egypt to Labo Hamath to bring the Ark of God from Kiriath Jearim. David and all Israel went up to Baalah, that is, Kiriath Jearim in Judah, to bring up from there the Ark of God the ark of god the lord who sits enthroned between the cherubim the ark that is called by his name they transported the ark of god on a new cart from the house of abinadab now first of all who's responsible for here who's the most important name here david david exactly he's the one he is literally an anointed leader of god's people mm-hmm. he was anointed by samuel to be a king and also a prophet he was a writer of scripture he was Mm -hmm. able to Mm -hmm. uh and also he had some priestly functions too but anyway so david he's the big name right here so it says they transported the ark of god on a new cart from the house of abinadab uzza and ahio were guiding the cart while david and all israel were energetically celebrating before god singing and playing various stringed instruments tambourines cymbals and trumpets hmm. when they arrived at the threshing floor of kaidan uzza reached out his hand to take hold of the ark because the oxen stumbled now why did he do this? And here's my theory, is David had these expectations, we're gonna take this ark, we're gonna be joyous, we're gonna have this procession, it's gonna look pretty and I'm expecting people to keep this procession looking pretty. Mm-hmm. So Uzzah had expectations from David, orders from David to uh, to lead this ark safely on this ox cart, mm-hmm. which first of all is not what you're supposed to be doing. Right. So Uzzah never raised his hand and said hey wait a minute, the Torah says how we're supposed to do it. David, why are you making me do it the way that it says it's not supposed to do? Okay. He did not criticize any leader. Mm-hmm. He failed to criticize David. He failed to hold David accountable to the law that the king, the king is not above the law. Right. A prophet is not above the law mm-hmm. in, in, uh, in in the Bible. Anyway, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so Uzzah reached out his hand to take hold of the ark because the oxen stumbled. hmm The Lord was so furious with Uzzah, he killed him because he reached out his hand and touched the ark. He died right there before God. David was angry because the Lord attacked Uzzah, so he called that place Perez-Uzzah, which remains its name to this very day. This is the New English translation. Mm -hmm. So I've already fleshed out a lot of these details, but when you see what happens, it's very clear that this isn't, quote, an ark steadier of someone who complains and grumbles and tries to fix what what the leaders are doing. This is exactly the opposite. Uzzah was killed because he did not speak out when he knew. He was part of a family that had been hosting the ark in their house. Mm-hmm. He, he should have known, um, people should have known, that it needed to be carried by Levites, it needed to be carried the way in th- that the Torah says. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is, did David learn his lesson? And the answer is yes. And most people don't quote this because they don't know the, the, the scriptures well enough. They just look at this passage. But if we look later, two chapters later in First Chronicles 15, we get some more data, some more evidence. Here's what it says. Um, David summoned the priests Zadok and Abiathar along with the Levites. Remember, Levites, that's who's supposed to be carrying them. Mm-hmm. Uriel, Isaiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Aminadab. He told them, you are the leaders of the Levites' families. You and your relatives must consecrate yourselves and bring the ark of the Lord God of Israel up to the place I have prepared for it. The first time you did not carry it. That is why the Lord God attacked us because we did not ask him about the proper way to carry it. The priests and Levites consecrated themselves so they could bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. The descendants of Levi carried the ark of God on their shoulders with poles, just as Moses had commanded in keeping with the Lord's instruction. Close quote. Hmm. It tells you where the blame lies. Mm -hmm. The narrator of 1 Chronicles says, it doesn't say, whoops, Uzzah messed up and criticized No, David messed up. Mm -hmm. David messed up and someone else died. Mm -hmm. This is a pattern when the Lord, it's sad, but when the Lord's servants make mistakes, often it's other people who die. Mm -hmm. Uh, Think about in the, the, the idolization of the golden calf. Aaron led it, but he didn't die. Thousands of Israelites died because, because of that. He didn't mm-hmm. die, and he led it. Mm-hmm. There's other examples, David in the census. This is Second Samuel 24 and First Chronicles 21, where David, out of his pride and military endeavor, wanted to number his people and his armies, and that was wrong. That also violated the Torah mm-hmm. and uh, in the way that he did it. He did not do it in the way the Torah specified. And then the Lord as punishment didn't kill David but the Lord sent a plague through Israel and 70,000 Israelite men died because of David's mistake and then also with David and the sin with Bathsheba Uh, and Bathsheba is not to blame she did not consent to this she did not have the power to say no to King David so this is all on King David Mm -hmm. so Here's what happened. Nathan the prophet said to David after this, Yes, and the Lord has forgiven your sin. You are not going to die. Nevertheless, because you have treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son who has been born to you will certainly die. Second Samuel twelve thirteen and 14. So we've got many cases where an anointed servant of the Lord made a mistake. That servant was not punished, but other people... Died, including innocent people died because Mm. of what these leaders are doing. Mm. So the lesson we learn is if the leader is doing something against the Torah, against what God has clearly said, we're supposed to hold that leader accountable. Sooner than later, by the way. Because if uh, I don't hold the leader accountable, I could be the one that dies, right? right? It's on me if I don't. And so that's really what happened here. Mm -hmm. And notice, David fixed his mistake. He learned which means he knew he did it wrong, or he or he learned that he did it wrong. So the blame is not on Uzzah, the blame is on David, and even David admits that he was the wrong, because he, here's what he didn't do. He didn't say, whoops, we're just gonna do it the same way on the ox cart, and you just learn not to you touch it. He, nope, he actually fixed the structural problem. Mm-hmm. The thing that put that innocent person in the place where his only option was to reach out and grab it. Right. Mm-hmm. By the time you get to that point, That's what's what's gonna happen. I'm thinking about the November 2015 policy. People literally died because of that.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. And the bottom line is that if an anointed leader tells you to do something, I've heard this in the church, like going back to Mountain Meadows, and there's other leaders of the church who have said, well, if the prophet gets it wrong, if a leader of the church tells you to do something and it's wrong, God's gonna bless you anyway. Nope, God's gonna strike you down <laughs> if the leader tells you to do something that's wrong and you don't speak out. God will
0: strike you down.
1: That's what so happened
0: to Uzzah. That's yeah, exactly. That's why the Lord was angry with him. That's the word it uses, right? Right, right, exactly. Because he did And and yeah. let me
1: let me just give you evidence. It wasn't just the ceremonial touching of the ark that was the problem. It was this larger problem that was the problem that he mm-hmm. didn't speak out. Because there are times where it's totally okay to violate the ceremonial law. Like, let me just give you an example of one time when David did it himself. Now, people are gonna be so impressed that I know the scriptures, I don't even need to brag anymore, right? (laughs) But, so in Exodus 25, verse 30, we've got this concept of the showbread, the bread of the presence, which was set out uh, every week so that there would be uh, standing bread in the temple so that God could look at it, right? It would be there before the presence of God as an offering Uh, to God right you have Mm -hmm, this permanent mm -hmm. standing offering of bread in the temple and if you look at 1 Samuel 21 David and his men uh, were hungry and they went to the temple and ate the bread that was only legal for the priests to eat so, oh, so, I should back up and say that after they, uh, after the bread was there a week, they put the bread, they took that bread away and put fresh bread, and then they ate the old bread. So that's okay. the bread that they, thats the only bread that they had available, and because they were hungry, mm-hmm. David violated this ceremonial law in order to save lives. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, God isn't some some cruel tyrant that that is going to trip people up and, and be, be awful, right? People talk about this Old Testament God. Look, God is loving in both Testaments, I have to say. And, and God would rather have us break a rule than break a person. Mm. And we see that in Jesus's ministry, mm-hmm. uh, where he said that the Sabbath was made for people and not people for the Sabbath in Mark two. And he actually cites this story of King David right here. And then he says that the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath, which is very provocative. And Daryl Bach tells us that Jesus teaches about himself by having people think about what he's doing. Let me say that again. Jesus teaches about himself by having people think about what he's doing. So let's think about what Jesus did. Let's think about what Uzzah did. Let's think about what David did. And I don't want anyone to call me an arc steadier because I'm willing to speak the truth mm-hmm. and to say, hey, wait a minute, let's double check this. Mm. That is not wrong. It is not loyal. It's parallel to America in a way, right? When we criticize America, it's not because we hate America. It's because we want to live out the promises in the Constitution, in the mm-hmm. Declaration of Independence, Uh And in our laws, we want to actually take these civil rights laws and make them have their intended effect, Mm -hmm. which they're not having.
0: Right. I wonder what would have happened to Paul if he or what would have happened to the church if Paul didn't speak up when he did uh, during that confrontation in Antioch with Peter. What I think would have happened would have likely been a schism in the uh, New Testament church One that would have taken a while to recover from, if ever, a schism between Jews and Gentiles Mm -hmm. where even in the Christian church, uh, Jews were still given preferential treatment, which would have defeated the whole purpose. Mm -hmm. And more people would have been, you know, maybe they wouldn't have physically been harmed. Maybe they would have, but they certainly would have experienced uh, social, emotional and spiritual harm as a result of what Peter did had Paul not done anything. Now, right. Who knows if anything would have happened to Paul if he didn't study that? But I think a lot about, uh, like, as you were saying that, I was thinking about, you know, what our responsibility as allies is in situations similar to what us was in. Like, we're supposed to nip that stuff in the bud lest they put us in precarious situations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because um, you know, this trope has actually been used in movies before. when the ally to the protagonist doesn't realize until it's too late the mess that they've gotten themselves or the protagonist in, yeah. and then they come in realizing the error of their ways and they die. This is one of the lessons that we as allies can learn is that uh, there are harmful effects, not just to LGBTQ folks, but but perhaps to us as well. For realizing too late our error and not speaking up sooner. Mm -hmm. And I hear it a lot about how so many parents of gay children wish they would have listened to their children. And then unfortunately, it ends up being too late because either, um, you know, either these uh, children complete suicide or they experience so much emotional Mm -hmm. turmoil that they can't live at home or that they resent their parents or that they need therapy to undo every all the damage that has been done to them they leave the church or they end up doing a variety of things that are ultimately healthy for them but you know don't help them immediately in the reconciliation process yeah. of their relationships with their parents just a lot of heartache on our part can be avoided if we just act sooner than later. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, it's going to be uncomfortable. And I'm sure Mm -hmm. that's Mm -hmm. one of the reasons Uzzah didn't say anything. Perhaps it was uncomfortable for him to speak out against the king to say, oh, this is actually not the way this is supposed to be done. But, you know, that ultimately led to his downfall, um, you know, later in the story. So I'm thinking specifically about allies, about our responsibility to act sooner than later when opportunities to affirm our brothers and sisters on the margins come up because the mm-hmm. cost of yeah. doing that later could be much greater than if we had just done it when we knew we should have done it. Exactly. And that gets back to the
1: my point about David if David had been the one with his life on the line, he probably would have done a better job of doing it right. But because Ooh, he didn't say bear that, again. that if David's life had been on the line, he would have done a better job of making sure he did it right. Mm-hmm. It was someone else's life, mm-hmm. not his. Mm-hmm. So he, like, the thing is he didn't bear the cost yes. for his own mistakes. Yes. That yes. is the problem we have. Yes. When white people make decisions about black people's lives and Mm -hmm. dignity and future, Mm -hmm. right? Yep. Because if they get it wrong, they don't suffer. And this happens here. We've got straight people in the church Mm -hmm. and cisgender people in the church making decisions that don't affect them. Mm -hmm. And they are not prompted to get that right because if they get it right... I mean, if they don't get it right, well, it's, it doesn't hurt them any. Right. But it hurts my people. Mm-hmm. Why aren't we at the table making those decisions? Mm-hmm. We bear the cost if the decision is wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not not them. So we should be the ones to be accountable to make that decision. Mm-hmm. I really think, and people can get mad at me for this, but. We talk about 1978 in our church as a victory (laughs) in the sense that we made the right decision, but there's another layer to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe they made the right decision in making the change, but what they didn't change is the decision-making process. We still had 15 white men make a decision about black folks, Mm -hmm. and they didn't change... The leadership structure, they didn't change how they make the decision making. They didn't change the accountability structure. They didn't change anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they made the right change on that one policy, but they didn't change the thing that led them into that problem to begin with. They didn't Mm -hmm. share the
0: power that Jesus did. Mm So, And in 2021, we still got a group of 15 mostly white dudes born in the mm -hmm. Jim Crow era Mm -hmm. making decisions. So what we what we ne- what we didn't fix,
1: and I, I, what we didn't fix was the decision making process in the church, and that yeah. has that that has stabbed us in the back mm-hmm. for generations. Mm-hmm. When we look at how we make decisions about women, how we make decisions about uh, disabled folks, or how we make decisions about the LGBTQ community, like it's people who don't bear the cost. Who are making those decisions and they can just make those decisions any way they want and people say well derek what do you do what you have to do is make people's bigotry costly for them
0: yes sir anyway section 86 this is the uh interpretation of the parable of the wheat and the tares and uh, joseph smith basically came across this or felt prompted to go about this revelation as he was again translating uh the bible uh, translating the New Testament, and uh, presumably going past, I don't know, this wasn't his first or second, I think, uh, review of this text. So this just lets us know that uh, right. that Joseph Smith went through the text multiple times and was constantly revising. This is a revision of his revision that he's working on, and that is what spurred uh, this particular revelation. So, uh, Derek, what would you like to say about the Lord's interpretation of the parable of the wheat and tares present in section 86?
1: Well, for me, the impact is on how we do church in community. All right. And a lot of people want to purify the church through force, through coercion, through compulsion, rather than through persuasion, which is d- what DNC 121 says. Right. But through artificial ways of getting rid of people who cause trouble for those who um, benefit from the injustices. Hashtag DesNet. Yes and but this gets back to this ark steadiers people talk about the ark steadiers first of all like i said they're using the term wrongly but they talk about ark steadiers as people who are unfaithful to the church who are criticizing uh who are holding the church leaders accountable and holding the church as a people accountable mm-hmm. and saying well we've got to get those out of the church we've got to uproot those tares." but the whole point of this parable is that these tares were a particular kind of weed that in its early stages of growth looked exactly like the wheat. It was Mm -hmm. hard to tell them apart Mm -hmm. until harvest time and they bore fruit and based on the grain, you could tell what the wheat was and what the weeds were. So at harvest time, you could, yeah, you could clearly tell them apart and you just uh, separate them at that time but before then if you tried to eradicate the weeds you would inadvertently pull up a lot of the wheat as well the innocent people who are uh, victims of this witch hunt right Uh uh-huh and so that's really what the Lord's uh and you can see this parable in Mark 4 and Luke uh, I'm sorry Mark 4 and Matthew chapter 13 okay you can see that that's what it is And let's talk about how this works. Have you ever heard the phrase, the philosophies of men mingled with scripture used against people who are trying to do some good in the church?
0: all the time. And I've heard that with us a couple of times. Well, let me just,
1: once and for all, forever, put that objection in its grave. I just wanna name that it's a matter of perspective. You could call it, the philosophies of man mingled with scripture, or you could call it, likening the scripture unto yourselves, right? Because when we bring our full self to the scripture, we're gonna bring our philosophy, we're gonna bring our life experience, we're gonna bring all this stuff, So, of course, it's literally it's the same thing. Philosophies of men mingled with scripture and likening the scriptures unto yourselves is literally the same thing from two different perspectives. It's Mm. a matter of are you looking at it charitably or are you looking at it uncharitably? And Mm. how are you trying to frame the situation, right? And so people could take innocent work like what we're doing and frame it as an ungodly mixture of human philosophies and uh, the scriptures but when you in context the philosophies of men is stuff like racism stuff Mm -hmm. that's not from god Mm -hmm. that people are mingling into the scriptures and mingling into our our prophetic and
0: apostolic voices the bible and christianity by the way are the original weapons of racism yeah that is a proper use of that term and the other thing is this is a longer detour but
1: when you actually look at the human fingerprints all over Scripture mm-hmm. and the flaws and frailties that we see with God's uh, Scripture authors, the Scriptures come premingled with human philosophy. That's true. But that's for another
0: week. Yeah, yeah. Well then, I guess that uh, the only thing that remains is let's go on to uh, section... Section 87. Section 87, yes, sir. So section 87, this is the Civil War prophecy. That is what we... Typically, call section 87 oh and by the way even Joseph Smith knew that the Civil War was gonna be about slavery he said those words so if any Latter-day Saint tries to tell you or feed you this whole line about the Civil War not being about slavery just let them know or just be aware that they are telling on themselves about how little how little they know about the scriptures how little they know about our own history so like don't let members of the church do that nonsense anyway that section 87 the Civil War prophecy a lot of mess is going on in the country at this time uh, Congress passing tax laws uh, there was all this stuff going on and basically a, a a military confrontation seemed imminent to the Saints and like a bunch of other folks so like Latter-day Saints Christians they viewed these particular events that were leading to military confrontation they viewed these in very eschatological terms they thought the end of the world was coming so Joseph Smith uh, being one of these individuals was like let me talk to the lord about this and that's basically where section 87 came from this stuff about wars rumors of wars was really getting to the saints and then joseph received a revelation about what was to come that is now se- that is now section 87. so uh, what would you like to uh talk about in here dave or wow dave derek who is dave wow i've never made that mistake Wow,
1: like you're moving away and
0: then you're like completely <laughs> forgetting me. Oh, no. I'm looking at David on my paper. Oh, okay, that's it is what here. It is. Well,
1: anyway, David. Yes, go ahead. Well, like you said, I think it's an issue of genre. I think people will take this and look at it hyper-literally and say, well, no. I mean, we have the civil world... The Civil War and the world didn't end, and we didn't have all this major, major cataclysmic, catastrophic stuff with uh, with the uh, earthquakes and stuff. Like, but you have to realize the genre is one uh, of not a literal weather forecast, but this is one where you take something of this world and dress it up and adorn it with this eschatological symbolic language. And you see this all the time. You see this in Acts chapter two, where the Joel prophecy about, you know, the moon will will turn to blood and the sun will be darkened. Peter applied that to the Pentecost event, right? You take these uh, powerful things, and I think it's a cultural difference. Like if we lived in the ancient world, uh, or if we lived in this, uh, sort of eschatological fervor of the 19th century where everything had significance in terms of the second coming, it would make more sense, right? Um, and if you want to make more sense of this, listen to last week's thing about demythologization because we have to do a little bit of that here to make sense of of the fact that, yeah, literally there, we didn't have all this whirlwind and plague and earthquake and uh, thunder and lightning and and then the consummation of everything and then yeah that that's not what happened but i don't think that that is really necessary to for this to be a true and valid prophecy i think there's there's the prophecy of the civil war and then the culturally flavored language that adorns it right and so that's kind of where i'm going with this okay
0: and that's it impressive derek Genuinely impressive. I'm proud of you, Derek. Real talk. Before we go ahead and wrap this up, this little treatise on section 85 and a couple of things in 86 and 87, I want to remind y'all that Dialogue, a journal of Mormon Thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows in the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Brother Derek, where can folks find us? You can find us... On
1: beyondtheblockpodcast.com, also on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and then uh, Instagram and Twitter at
0: BTBLDS. Anything else? Nope. That's all right. it. With that then, thank you all for tuning in Till we meet again next week. Yeah. Later, everyone. Bye.